Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Activate, a podcast where I have 16 conversations with people about gender-based violence. My name's Anna Knight, I'm a survivor of domestic violence, and this year, for the 16 Days of Activism campaign, I wanted to make a resource that we could all use to understand domestic violence and gender-based violence better. Today, my guest is Gemma Hines, and Gemma will be talking about non-fatal strangulation. I have to admit, when Gemma approached me, I didn't really understand non-fatal strangulation. I didn't know why it needed to be its own offence rather than just classed under general assault or physical abuse. So I was really grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation with Gemma and learn why we all need to be much more aware of what this is and what we can do when it occurs. I'll hand you straight over to Gemma so that we can start to learn more about this together. Hi Gemma, it's lovely to have you on the podcast with us. If we could start by you just telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yes, no, thank you for having me. So I am Gemma Hines. I am a domestic abuse practitioner for Wigfield Domestic Abuse Service. So I hold a caseload of medium and high risk victims of domestic abuse. And I work directly with victims to implement a safety and support plan. It's lovely to have you. So when we were talking about what we could talk about today, one of the things you mentioned being particularly passionate about was supporting people around non-fatal strangulation. I have to admit, I wasn't 100% sure what that was when you said Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) So for the benefit of the people listening, could you just tell us what that is? Yes, of course. So non-fatal strangulation is... As the title suggests, it's strangulation that doesn't end in homicide. So it is an abuse tactic, a common one we see. And the reason I wanted to talk about it today is because of the new legislation. So it came in last year with the Domestic Abuse Act and it came into effect this June. What we're seeing so far is so good. We are seeing quite a swift application of the law. So I think last time I checked, we had over 80 charges here in England and Wales And we have had our first conviction as well. Oh, brilliant. So it is actually resulting in convictions then? It is, yes. It it seems to be moving a lot more swiftly, shall we say, than other legislation that's come in over the years, which is fantastic. From what I was reading, it's particularly important in terms of what it indicates about a survivor's safety. Is that right? It is, yes. So unfortunately, any victims of domestic abuse who are being subjected to strangulation are seven times more likely to be killed by their abuser. So I guess the hope is then that with more charges, convictions, swift convictions, it is actually a piece of legislation that could save lives then. I mean, the ultimate goal of it is that we want to save lives. I think there's a lot of, unfortunately, misunderstanding And also minimisation, even amongst victims themselves, they will naturally minimise what they're being subjected to. It's a perfectly acceptable coping mechanism. So you might hear victims say, oh, he grabbed me by the neck or she put me in a headlock. But what 
is actually happening is strangulation. And when we're talking about strangulation, even though the legislation unfortunately just simply says it happens when someone intentionally strangles another, (laughs) which is not very helpful, what we're actually talking about is the obstruction of airflow or the obstruction of circulation of blood. Mm. One of the reasons we want to highlight the seriousness of it even though the title is non-fatal strangulation, one of the things about this crime is the risk of delayed death. So death may not happen at the time of the incident or shortly after, it could be years down the line. And what researchers found is a link between strangulation and stroke. And so when we look at data that tells us, you know, the second cause of death in women under 40 is stroke, then that kind of links in with those being subjected to strangulation. Wow, yeah. So there's that real, it's not just the immediate risk then that we're hoping to impact. There's long-term risk that this law is helpfully going to mitigate. It is, yes. Certainly that is the hope. I just want to say as well, the question often gets asked when we talk about strangulation and it now being a criminal offence, what about the so-called rough sex? We see it in the media, it's often glamorised, Fifty Shades Mm -hmm. of Grey. What I will say is there are differences between erotic strangulation and non-fatal strangulation. Those differences are mainly with non-fatal strangulation in a domestic abuse context, there is absolutely no consent to that harm being caused it's a real challenge I think that's such a good point from talking to one of the other people I'm interviewing she talks about being part of the kink community and how people who do as part of kink play have specific training on how to do the strangulation without causing any damage and I think that is an important distinction as well that anyone doing that as part of sex should know what they're doing because the Mm -hmm. risks are quite extreme It is, yes. Unfortunately, if you don't know what you're doing, the strangulation will still be as dangerous. One of the barriers for recognising this crime is it often leaves, I think 50% of the time, it leaves no external injuries. Because of the lack of injuries, that's not being picked up by professionals. And it's also, it may be minimised by victims who aren't seeing those injuries and therefore don't go and get the urgent medical attention they they need. Mm. If we are able to raise awareness of actually, it's what's going on internally with the strangulation. It's that increased risk. 80% of victims who have been strangled are likely to have a severe brain injury. Wow. And as you say, if survivors are minimising it, if they're, as a protective mechanism, playing it mm-hmm. down, of course, the scope of the problem is likely to be a lot bigger than we are even aware of, I imagine. Yeah, unfortunately, data suggesting 20,000 women per year are strangled. I would argue it's likely a lot more. Mm-hmm. The issue we have is we're not proactively asking the question. And if we are, if we say to a victim, have you been strangled? They may say no because they're not identifying their experience as a strangulation. He could have put his knee in your neck. He could have, you know, strangled you with your necklace, a scarf. It's really hard to get a authentic sense of how many victims are actually being subjected to this horrific crime. So it sounds like strangulation is actually quite a, a common tactic that perpetrators 
are using. Why is this a tactic that perpetrators use? So we commonly see non-fatal strangulation with victims who are being subjected to coercive and controlling behaviour. The reason perpetrators of domestic abuse use strangulation is because it's a very powerful control mechanism. What it does is it allows the abuser to express physical dominance over their victim and their intention is they want their victim to submit and to comply. It sounds like as perpetrators' tactics go, it would be a pretty powerful one. 100%. The psychological consequences of being strangled are you know long term for victims we're talking depression we're talking dissociation ptsd i've certainly had victims describe strangulation to me as a near-death experience that's how they've perceived it they thought they were going to die so the psychological trauma following that is massive Mm. i do just want to say for any listeners out there perhaps for themselves or for any of their loved ones who is at risk of strangulation, there are some measures that I would like to suggest. So any threats that are being made, please do take them seriously. If you're comfortable reporting to the police, please do report to the police. If you would just like support to increase your safety, then please reach out to your local domestic abuse service. Other measures that you can do is if you fear a strangulation is forthcoming, please remove any objects such as scarves, necklaces that you think may be used to cause you harm. I would also advise clients to avoid the bedroom, avoid the bathroom. We commonly see pillows being used to suffocate. The reason I ask clients to avoid the bathroom if they can is because of that risk of drowning. And then, of course, in terms of safety, after a strangulation has happened, please do seek urgent medical care. Please do ask for that MRI. Please don't think I've got no injuries, I'm fine, because we don't know what's going on internally. And for people who are working with survivors then, is that something you think they should be aware of, is how to ask these questions in a way that survivors might resonate with, might understand without having that, oh my god, no, he's never strangled me because he Mm -hmm. hasn't put his hands around my throat. Yes, 100%. What I tend to ask victims is to give me quite a detailed explanation of the incident. He moved me by the neck as opposed to... He strangled me and was taking control of obstructing my direction. It's very important and hopefully, you know, as this legislation comes in, medical professionals and all frontline professionals really that are working with families, with potential victims, will be able to spot some of the physical signs because of the nature of the act. A lot of victims lose consciousness and then they suffer memory loss. So again, it's asking those right questions. A victim may not even recall they've been subjected to strangulation. So instead, we need to ask other questions. You know, when strangulation happens, a victim typically loses consciousness within six seconds. And then within about 30 seconds, they've lost control of their bowel and their bladder. So because of that loss of consciousness, they're not able to recall the strangulation. So instead, we could ask, did you lose bowel control, bladder control? And that can be an indication for the professional that a strangulation has happened. 
the question that I'm asking everyone before we mm-hmm. wrap up is what do you think needs to come in the future to support survivors? Oh, that's a really good question. For me, it will always be awareness. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we still in society suffer with victim blaming. There's a lot of minimization, a lot of denial. And for me, it's awareness. It's how prevalent this crime is. The fact that it is a crime, you know, still to some people, it's viewed as a private matter. It's absolutely not. It's a criminal offence. Awareness will bring about those changes in legislation we want to see happen. Those funding given to services and therefore well, better access support for, for survivors. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time today. It's been really interesting. No, no, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope you found that as interesting as I did. It really opened my eyes and made me consider the lives of people that I know in a whole new way. In particular, I'd never realised how long-lasting the physical implications of domestic violence could be. That increased stroke risk has really made me see things in a new way. But I think Gemma raised a wider issue in what she was saying as well which is that quite often we don't know how to respond, what to say, what to do when someone does talk about the things they've experienced. I know from talking to my own loved ones, my friends and family, that when I started to talk about what I'd experienced, a lot of them felt really uncomfortable, not because I was opening up to them, but because they didn't know what to say or do in response. Survivors often play down and hide what's going on for them so much that when they do open up, it can come as a real surprise and it can be quite confronting to know how to respond, what to do. If you're looking at a future situation and thinking, oh my god, I wouldn't know what to do, not to worry. Today's invitation to activism is to read a simple guide that'll help you feel prepared for when these situations occur in future. This guide has been prepared by the wonderful Anneli on Twitter, whose username is at Piglitish. She has a wonderful blog where she talks quite often about the impacts of domestic violence. And I was really just blown away by the amount of work that she put into compiling this guide for what to do if a loved one talks to you about domestic abuse or is going through that and you find out. I've included the link to it in the show notes. And what I would really love is for you to give it a read. It won't take long, but you'll really come away feeling like you know exactly how to handle those situations. If you feel called to, give it a share as well. Let's spread this information far and wide. And as always, don't forget to review, rate, share this podcast so that we're spreading this awareness as far as we possibly can. Tomorrow, my guest is Amanda Warburton Wynn. Amanda works with older people and people with physical or mental disabilities who are experiencing abuse. This is a topic that is particularly relevant to me. As I mentioned in my first episode, I am a disabled person myself. And Amanda talks so wonderfully, so knowledgeably 
about the additional risks that disabilities face and how carers can actually be the abusers in these situations. I hope that you can join us for another stimulating conversation.